Today is November 30th, 2020. The incoming Biden administration looks at ways to start implementing policy once in office. Trump goes on the attack against pretty much everyone. And many officials worry that Thanksgiving and Christmas travel will lead to an increase in the spread of COVID. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and family. We had a great vacation here, taking off last Friday, and are getting back at it with all the best stuff from over the weekend and over the Thanksgiving holiday. We've got the good stuff from the left, we've got the bad stuff from the left, we've got the good stuff from the right, and also the bad stuff from the right. And we are doing our best to find all that sweet, sweet truth that just lays right there in the middle. Here on Split the Difference Podcast, as many of you know, we pride ourselves in trying to be as, as have as much decorum as possible, to, to be polite, but also to have strong opinions and be well-educated about why we have those opinions. We want to bring both sides of the aisle together as much as possible and create a community that is all about unity going to have to trademark that one came up with it on the fly so with all of that we're going to hop on into our first story of the day story number one so first story of the day is around biden and mitch mcconnell for the most part trying to figure out how they're going to be able to implement their policy in this upcoming upcoming administration so arguably one of the most important relationships in all of the United States government is between the president and the vice president and the Senate majority leader and the House majority leader. For the most part, those people work together constantly throughout the 40 years of the presidential administrations and, you know, I guess being in power to be able to implement new legislation and make sure that the American people have their needs taken care of and the government is functioning and doing what it needs to be doing. You can see uh, many presidents have very contentious relationships with heads uh, with the majority leaders in both the House and in the Senate. Uh, you can see a great example of that actually is between Biden and Mitch McConnell or uh, Obama and Mitch McConnell during the Obama administration, which we'll get into a little bit later. But uh, way, the way everything is structured, a little bit of a civics lesson here, is the executive branch oftentimes works to bring up good ideas. The executive cabinet uh, works to put together ideas and legislation that they think needs to be passed. And then they go and they take it to Congress and they talk through it with Congress or Congress works to put together and piece together legislation. Uh, and they work and they communicate with the executive branch in order to make sure that it gets passed. Uh, but the president knows that no legislation can be actually written and put into law without both the Senate and the House passing those bills, right? But the House and the Senate also know that nothing that they, well, it's very difficult to, the large majority of what they get passed is not going to be passed unless the president actually signs off on it. The president can veto a bill coming from that, you know, the two houses of Congress, even though if they've both passed it, and he can basically say, no, I'm not going to actually sign on to that. Now, the House and the Senate can then turn around and vote on it again, and if they have overwhelming majority to be able to push it back, then they can override the presidential veto. But that does not happen very often because it takes overwhelming bipartisan support in order to be able to do that. So the executive branch realizes, and the president realizes, that they have to have a good relationship with the majority leaders on both, both sides, the House and the Senate, in order to be able to get legislation passed and passed well. 
the majority leaders uh, do everything from, you know, figuring out what's going to get out on the floor. You know, they're the ones that decide what the Senate is going to vote on or what the House is going to vote on. You know, they're the ones in a lot of ways that kind of are the heartbeat of the party for the most part. And so, as a result, Biden and a lot of, you know, especially more left-leaning and Democratic pundits over the past week or so have really started to think about, well, what does Biden's relationship with Mitch McConnell look like? Because as of now, and likely, pending what happens in January with the election runoff in Georgia, the Republicans are going to hold the Senate. And if Biden is unable to have a decent relationship with Mitch McConnell— it's going to be very difficult for legislation to get passed that Biden wants to get passed. The Senate can pretty much go in and just roadblock anything and everything that Biden wants to do if they've got a really poor relationship with Biden. And that's pretty much exactly what you saw them do with the Obama administration. Mitch McConnell was in power then as well, and uh, when the Republicans had the entirety of the Senate— they pretty much railroaded everything the Obama administration wanted to do. They worked very, very, very hard to make sure that Obama did not get past what he wanted to get past. Um, so Biden and Mitch McConnell have known each other for a very, very long time. They have an extremely long history of working together. Um, both of them have been in politics for forever. Biden has been in politics, I think, for 47, 48 years. Mitch McConnell's been in office for like something like 30-something or close to 40 years as well. Um, they've both in the, They've both been in the Senate for a long time, so Biden, although he has not been in the Senate in a while, was a senator for the vast majority of his career uh, and worked alongside Mitch McConnell for a large portion of that. Um, they have a pretty mutual respect for one another, I think. Uh, I don't think that there's a lot of people that have come out and actually thought that McConnell and Biden like just can't stand each other. I don't think that you've seen that a lot. There have actually been numerous McConnell aides that have come out and said that he looked better and felt better after negotiations with Joe Biden when he was vice president under the Obama administration than McConnell has looked and felt after he comes out of negotiations with Donald Trump under his administration. Uh, very interesting because McConnell, McConnell is a... I mean, a very, very stereotypical kind of far right wing conservative. Okay. He is unashamedly that he's, you know, out of Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky is very, very conservative, has always been a red state and a far, far right leaning state. Pretty much nobody is worried about uh, whether Republicans are going to win Kentucky or not. Right. Or even whether Mitch McConnell is going to win Kentucky because he has had a, he's been a staple there for a very long time. But uh, McConnell and Biden, you know, because Biden is a little bit more of a moderate, um, I think that that has kind of pushed them to be able to work together on some things a little bit better. Um, they worked during the Obama administration on numerous different things to be able to get things passed. And NBC actually did an interesting article talking about um, how Biden and McConnell, because they're so completely different personality-wise, it actually benefits them in negotiations. McConnell is kind of known to be a little bit quieter, uh, maybe a little bit more reserved, kind of sitting back and listening a lot during negotiations, and then kind of chiming in when he feels the need to chime in, where Joe Biden is kind of the opposite. He's kind of been noted to be an, an extremely gregarious personality, very, very talkative, very extroverted, and wants to be able to be in the forefront of the negotiations to talk out every single point that he can. Um, a lot of Democrats are looking at this, and some Republicans as well are looking at this and hoping that that actually pays off for the negotiations that will need to be taking place once Biden comes into the administration. However, I think one of the toughest parts for McConnell, and this isn't just Mitch McConnell, but I think that you see this a lot with Nancy Pelosi being the House Majority Leader, um, 
it, the most difficult part that they've had is is actually managing the more passionate and inflamed sides of b- both of their respective parties. Um, and Biden is going to struggle with this a lot as well. Um, Nancy Pelosi kind of touts herself as a more moderate Democrat. I think that that's somewhat true based upon her voting record. She's obviously become more progressive over the past eight to 10 years. But you know, for the majority of her career, she's been, for the most part, somewhat moderate. And Biden is definitely, you know, campaigned, has campaigned and touts himself as being a moderate. So when Obama was president, the goal of the Republicans, for the most part, it was pretty much to stop every single thing that his administration did, right? We talked about that a little bit earlier. It was obvious that he had an overtly contentious relationship with Mitch McConnell, joking one time uh, in a speech, Barack Obama came out and said that, uh, Many people suggested that he should spend more time in the Senate and that he doesn't spend nearly enough time in the Senate and that he should go and take Mitch McConnell out for a drink to be able to, you know, kind of get to know him a little bit better. And to which, you know, Barack Obama responded with, go get a drink with Mitch McConnell. He said, really? You go get a drink with Mitch McConnell. So obviously Barack Obama did not like Mitch. Uh, Mitch did not like Barack Obama. And that carried over in this past administration uh, for the Democrats against Trump, right? So the Trump administration, the goal of the Democrats was pretty much to railroad every single thing that they did. And in 2018, they did a pretty good job of that. The Trump administration really had a, for the most part, they had a couple things that were very notable, especially on the foreign policy front. But for the most part, through 2018 through 2020, the Trump administration didn't have a ton of stuff that they were able to kind of push and get passed through the legislative branch because the Democrats held a majority in the House and they stopped the vast majority of the stuff they wanted to do. Um, I think that you can see Nancy Pelosi struggling with this. You can see Mitch McConnell struggling to be able to rein in the Republicans now as well. Um, Once they kind of lose that um, that all common enemy that they're able to have, right? So the reason why I brought up the the Obama administration and, you know, the, especially in 2008, 2012, um, the Republicans were able to all rally around, we don't like Obama, so we're going to vote everything down. As a Republican, I can't do anything that Barack Obama wants to do. And so as a result, Mitch McConnell was able to kind of rally the entirety of his caucus around that one singular enemy and that one singular cause and vote down a lot of the legislation that the Democrats wanted to push through. Nancy Pelosi did the same thing with Donald Trump. Well, now that Nancy Pelosi doesn't have that common enemy of Trump, it's going to be very difficult for her to be able to rally those extremely far-left progressives like Bernie Sanders, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar. It's going to be tough for for her to be able to rally those people and link them up with a lot of the more moderate Democrats that line up more towards the middle within the Democratic Party. Mitch McConnell, on the other hand, uh, because Biden is much more of a moderate, I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult for him to rally the entirety of the Republican caucus around. Uh, Biden is the bad guy. He does everything terrible. Bad, bad Biden. He's horrible. We all need to vote everything against everything that he does, right? It's going to be a little bit more difficult for Mitch McConnell to do that. Do that. So hopefully what this means is that both houses are going to be able to actually come together and find somewhat of a middle ground and be able to get decent legislation passed. Now, that's going to be yet to be seen, of course. Uh, Biden, obviously, is still very much a Democrat. Nancy Pelosi is still very much a Democrat. Mitch McConnell, very much a Republican, right? They have their own priorities. They have their own electorates uh, that they have to be working for in terms of Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. They are working very hard to be able to get their agenda pushed through uh, in each the House and in the Senate. 
So I don't think that you're going to see Mitch McConnell bending on his values and bending on the things that he feels like are important, right? Like you're not going to see Mitch McConnell go out there and vote against something that would, uh, or vote for something that would tear down the Second Amendment, right? Of course, you're not going to see Mitch McConnell do that. But especially on economic and fiscal things that need to get passed, especially on budgets that need to get passed, uh, certain legislation that needs to get pushed through, I think you're definitely going to start seeing Mitch McConnell hopefully come to the table with Biden with a little bit of that mutual and shared history together and say, all right, listen, I know you, you know me, we know how to work together. We know how to push through difficult impasses that are going to come up in conversation that are absolutely inevitable. And we can, we can figure out how to negotiate through those things and figure out what's going to be best for not only our parties, respective parties, but also the American people as a whole. Both of them are very smart. Both of them have been in politics for a very long time. I think that if they both set their minds to getting things done, then they're going to be able to get things done. It's going to take Mitch McConnell going and rallying uh, the Republican Party as kind of like the heartbeat in the Senate there in order to be able to get things passed. And Joe Biden is obviously going to be able to work very well with Nancy Pelosi and all of the House Democrats in order to be able to you know figure out ways to get things passed there as well. So hopefully... Biden wanting to bridge the gap a little bit and having some of that history will be of benefit um, because that relationship, especially between the Senate and the presidency, is incredibly important. So we'll have to see how all this starts to shape out. There's a lot of political pundits. You have some on the left that are saying Joe Biden should never yield. He should never go in and a kowtow or cower to anything that Mitch McConnell says, come in and be incredibly brash for everything. But then you also have some more moderate Democrats that are hoping that that relationship will actually be of benefit. So We'll have to see how all of it plays out. We won't know until January 20th when Biden actually gets in and we start to see some of his negotiating styles and some of the stuff that he actually starts to get pushed through. So with all of that having been said, let's hop on in to our story number two. So for our second story of the day, Trump goes on the attack. He, uh, I think, has he hasn't been quiet. I don't want it to come across. like I think that Donald Trump has not been incredibly uh, verbose and all, all in everybody's faces since the election because he absolutely has. But he hasn't been going out and doing a ton of interviews like he normally does. Donald Trump, before the election, loved to go on Fox News, just say all kinds of stuff. He'd just get on there. They'd give him a bunch of softball questions, right? Barely saying anything to disagree with anything that he's saying. He's just saying whatever he wants, and it just goes out to all the millions of people that tune into Fox News. Donald Trump loved that. He was always up watching Fox and Friends, tweeting about Fox and Friends. But he, you know, over the past couple weeks, hasn't been doing that nearly as much. Well, he finally had his first interview since the election on Fox News Sunday Morning Futures. So Donald Trump took this time to pretty much say that the reason he lost the election, no, 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 well, he didn't say that he lost, excuse me. The reason why it appears that Donald Trump lost is because of this incredible widespread fraud that is being allowed by the FBI and the CIA and everybody else that he could possibly think of. I mean, he literally attacked everybody. So um, he went and talked a lot about how the FBI and the CIA have just sat idly by and allow all the stuff that happened in the Russian investigation. He specifically was referring to like um, the... The alleged spying on him during his campaign in 2016, uh, the start of the Russian collusion investigation that was heavily based on the Steele dossier, which was for the most part debunked and found to be total hogwash. Um, but he is coming out and actively saying that the organizations that are, 
you know, for the most part, are there and supposed to keep the and protect the American people as a whole. That these organizations are the ones that are actually the most corrupt and are causing the most problems within the electoral system. Pretty hefty stuff here. So he also went on to say that he would consider appointing a special counsel to investigate all of this. So let's hop on in now uh, and listen to what Donald Trump had to say. Will you appoint a special counsel to investigate and to continue the investigating into what took place in the 2016 election? You mentioned Jim Comey and Andrew McCabe not facing accountability. Will you appoint a special counsel? By the way, Comey and McCabe, that's the least of it. You talk about the Logan Act. They used the Logan Act on General Flynn, who I was very proud to pardon. Uh, but they wanted to use, and they did use the Logan Act on General Flynn. And you know where that started. Look, this whole thing is a terrible situation. This should have never been allowed to happen. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an embarrassment to our country. All over the world, they're talking about it. And, yeah, I would consider a special prosecutor because, you know, this is not a counsel. It sounds so nice. I went through three years of a special counsel prosecutor. I call prosecutor because it's a much more accurate term. So uh, Donald Trump comes out and he says, in other words, he wants to start doing all the stuff that his opponents did to him for the past four years. He doesn't think it's fair. He thinks that everything's been stolen from him. He thinks that. You know, all of this attack has been done on him, all of it is with rampant voter fraud, and that he wants to be able to see justice done. The hypocrisy is not lost on me, as I'm sure it is not lost on you. This stuff is honestly just expected at this point, you know, like seeing Donald Trump come out and say he wants to do the exact same thing that the Democrats supposedly did to him for the past couple of years. It's just standard stuff. So um, not only has he is he attacking now the FBI and the CIA, saying that there's tons of corruption there, saying that everything was uh, against him with all these large American institutions, but he also has come out and said some pretty horrible thing about uh, Georgia officials, officials in Georgia that were kind of making sure the election kicked off well, especially the state uh, attorney general. Um, he uh, called multiple Georgia officials the, quote, enemy of the people. Um, went, took to Twitter and basically just threw everybody that he could under the, under the bus. Um, and this is contrary, I guess, to pretty much all the evidence that we have around how the election actually played out in Georgia. So if we look at what happened in Georgia, I was incredibly surprised that it flipped blue, like the vast majority of people in America. But the, they had more people voting, the larger a larger voter turnout than they'd had in much of recent history. I mean, they had millions of people going to the polls and voting, especially in and around Atlanta, DeKalb County and all those counties around Atlanta. Um, while at the same time, they had some of the lowest waiting times at the polls that they've had in recent history. I saw one, I actually saw... Um, uh, one statistic that was saying that uh, Georgia, the average waiting time at polls in Georgia was somewhere between two to five minutes. That is incredibly low. I mean, extremely low. Um, and, you know, you have to think they also had some of the most um, efficient counting that they'd had in history as well. Um, there has no, been absolutely zero evidence so far of any type of voter fraud happening. Uh, from what we can tell at this point, Georgia actually had probably one of the best run elections that they'd had in the past 20 to 30 or even 40 years. And Donald Trump, of course, is coming out and slamming all of the Republicans that are running it, right? Like Republicans run the entirety of the state of Georgia for the most part, right? Like 
they have a Republican governor, Republican attorney general, like the vast majority of the people, especially at the, at the higher gubernatorial level, all of them are Republicans. And he's coming out and attacking all of them, saying that they were now against Donald Trump as well. Um, the attorney general that Donald Trump is absolutely trash came out and basically released a statement that was like, Donald Trump is throwing me and my family under the bus, and we all voted for him. Like, obviously, this isn't fair. But I think that a lot of this kind of undergirds a lot of what Trump has done in the past as well, and probably will continue to do. But if Trump doesn't get what he wants, he just attacks the people that he feels he needs to attack. Doesn't matter how much you supported him in the past, he's going to attack you, right? Doesn't matter if you're Republican, doesn't matter if you're Democrat, if you're independent, doesn't matter who you are, he's going to attack you if he feels like it will give him any type of political gain. Um, and he'll attack you if he feels like the outcome that was there wasn't what he wanted. Um, and this is, it seems like Trump, for the most part, is burning every bridge that he can in Washington right now. Like, he's doing it with just total disregard for all of the people and relationships that he has made in Washington over the past four years. He's pretty much just burning these bridges and being like, it doesn't matter to me. All I want is to be good and seen as good in the eyes of my supporters. Which is why I have an extremely hard time believing all of these people that are coming out and saying that Donald Trump is the big forerunner for the 2024 presidential election. That he's going to come back and just Grover Cleveland everybody, right? Like, he's going to run, win the election, not run, or basically lose, and then he's going to run and actually win for a second term, but four years later. We don't know. Obviously, I, I can't see into the future. But like I've said before, I don't think Donald Trump's priority is going to be actually being in politics on Capitol Hill. I think his priority is going to be monetizing politics for his own gain after he gets out of office. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But I have a pretty good feeling that Donald Trump doesn't necessarily care about burning bridges right now, especially with Republicans. The only thing that he really cares about is, I think, making sure that he is looked at as still the hero and the king that all of his supporters view him as being. So with all of that having been said, let's hop on into our last story of the day, story number three. So our third story is officials continually worrying and now being extremely concerned about the holidays and what that will mean for COVID-19 spread. Um, a lot of people traveled over Thanksgiving. I'm sure many of you traveled on Thanksgiving. It's a normal thing to travel around this time of the year, especially with Thanksgiving in and out with Christmas coming up. We had an awesome Thanksgiving. We were very thankful for that. Uh, had a very, very small gathering, but that was good. We enjoyed it, was able to see a little bit of family. Um, but as many of you know, COVID cases are continuing to rise pretty much unencumbered at this point. Um, let's listen in. Actually, NBC did a uh, pretty good little bit about this in uh, one of their very recent um, news shows. Let's take a look at this now. TSA has processed more than 6 million travelers over the past week. Signs that despite desperate warnings from health officials to stay at home, many Americans did not. Now, experts fear a wave of new infections could be on the way. The U.S. has topped 13 million COVID cases, 4 million alone in the month of November, more than double what we saw in October, causing more local leaders to crack down. In Los Angeles, where cases have quadrupled since spring, officials have issued a new stay-at-home order banning all public gatherings except religious services and protests, and limiting restaurants to delivery or takeout only. Further north in Santa Clara County, officials are blocking all contact sports for at least three weeks. What we do or what we don't do starting today may mean a matter of life and death for many living in our county. Right, so... Um 
As you heard in the video, 4 million people got the virus in the month of November within the past month or so. That was up from 2 million that got the virus in October. So you're seeing that it's obvious it kind of goes at an almost exponential rate, right? If it's if stuff is not put in place, if uh, people aren't, you know, I guess social distancing the way that they should or if shutdowns or different things aren't in place, the more people that have it, the more people there are that can spread it just how it works. Um, and it's unfortunate because, you know, I think that in some ways you're seeing a, a, a pretty big disconnect between the American people as a whole and I think the American government. So some people are hoping that this is going to actually help herd immunity, that it's, it's going to run through the population. We might as well go ahead and, and you know, have it run through the population now. We can't afford to shut down the economy. Um, but many are also incredibly concerned about the aging population that we have, uh, especially the elder population and the economic effects that this will have. Um, and as cases continue to rise, there are increasing calls for Congress to pass some sort of stimulus to help people out. Um, and there have been more reports about hospitals starting to fill up and not enough nurses to go around. So there needs to be more congressional oversight and more congressional help in that as well. So one of the interesting things that I've seen is that uh, there definitely seems to be an increasing sentiment amongst Americans that uh, they're kind of they have just this COVID fatigue is what a lot of people are calling it. They're tired of staying at home. They're tired of not seeing families, especially now coming up on the holidays. They're tired of not being able to hang out and enjoy people. So what they're doing is they're just not staying at home as much, and they're not going out and distancing properly and. What we were able to see early on in the pandemic is that, yes, there are you know plenty of ways that the quarantines and the shutdowns did help, but in shutting down the entirety of the hospital or in shutting down the entirety of the restaurant systems and a lot of different service-based businesses, it didn't actually end up necessarily helping all that much uh, in terms of in terms of actually stopping the virus, right? So we knew that we couldn't stop the virus. We just wanted to, I guess, slow it down as much as possible. And we did slow it down some, but it doesn't look like that would actually end up doing us an, incre an incredible amount of benefit right now. Um, there are um, plenty of other places as well where there have been um, masks mandated for months and months for the greater part of this year. And they are still seeing incredible rise in cases as well. Germany is a great example of that in Europe. They've been required to wear masks for months, and Germany is seeing an incredible increase um, in cases there as well. So I've read a very interesting story on the Wall Street Journal uh, over this weekend um, about a couple of different restaurant owners, especially, but one specifically in Illinois that is basically deciding to keep his dining room open. Um, even though there's been a recent statewide uh, mandate and order from the Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker uh, requiring restaurants to close indoor dining at all. Um, uh, the owner basically closed earlier this year, said that he would close because that was what the state required for him to do. Um, afterwards, he opened back up when limited dining was dining was allowed. He went and installed like a $10,000 or $12,000 uh, air filter, air purifier to go within the restaurant. And he spent thousands of dollars on barriers uh, to put in all around the restaurant to make sure that patrons felt like they could come in and they were safe. And includes getting all the disinfectants and doing everything they needed to do there as well. Well, now what he's doing is he's like, I'm not going to, I can't afford to close down. Like, I, I, how can I, after going through and, and buying all these things and doing all, taking all the necessary precautions, how can I go through and actually close everything down again? Like, I have to be able to pay for my bills. And he's like, I'm not doing it. He's been open for 26 years or so. And uh, he, you know, went in and while the Wall Street Journal was interviewing him, was basically saying like, 
Listen, if the government's going to close my restaurant down, then they're going to have to pay for my bills and they have to pay for my pay my employees. This is starting to become an increasing sentiment amongst a lot of Americans. They're like, listen, I understand that this coronavirus is bad and I understand that bad things happen when you just let it run wild, but I can't deal with the economic effects of just shutting everything down and not being able to provide for my family. So um, we're going to have to see how the incoming Biden administration steps in and does this. Uh, he will hopefully, like I guess in our first story, will have to be able to work alongside Republicans and Democrats in order to be able to pass something that will be able to, uh, I guess, help people that need the help um, and kind of get the country back on the track that it needs to be to be able to stop this pandemic and get a vaccine to be able to push around the entirety of the country. Um, I do think that there's going to be an increase in COVID-19 cases because of Thanksgiving and Christmas. It just would make sense. Uh, I don't see a lot of this actually slowing down until we do get a vaccine, until we do get better treatments that get rolled out. So um, we'll have to see how Biden ends up handling all of it here over the next couple months. But with all of that having been said, let's go ahead and end the show with something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week uh, is actually two things. Uh, The first being that my sister-in-law got engaged this past week, which was awesome, ton of fun. We were able to celebrate her and uh, her now new fiancé. Had a great time celebrating with the family and his family as well, wishing them the very best of luck uh, in their new marriage. That um, and you know, definitely looking forward to having a new member of the family there. Uh, The second thing that made me smile is the podcast that I participated in that I was on a couple weeks ago. I actually just hit the shelves in the past couple of days. It's up on Spotify and it's also up on Apple Podcasts, I believe. So. I'm going to go through and uh, link that on my Instagram. So if you will go to my Instagram page and find me there, you'll be able to get a link to everywhere that you want to go, and I can tell you how to get to it. So with all that having been said, thank you so much for tuning in today. Check me out on all the different social media platforms. Give me a like and a thumbs up. Give me a subscribe. Um, Give me some feedback. I love to hear from everybody as much as possible. So remember, as always, guys, we're going to keep a level head. We're going to be reasonable and we're going to do our best to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.